I'll go ahead and get started. Everybody hear me okay? Anyway, I'm the one that always talks about all those dead people that write books. And, uh, but I want you to know this time I've got some live people that wrote books. So uh, <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Stephen Charnock, which you probably aren't, uh, he lived in the 18, 1650s, so you probably didn't meet him. And, uh, but I use a lot of his quotes in this, uh, this, outline, this uh, talk and on, on your outline. I'm not going to use all of them, but I put them on there so I can use them if I want them. Uh, he was a uh, Puritan divine in the 1650s in England. And he was one of the ones that was at times persecuted and at, at times was a preacher. He wrote a very thick book called The Existence and Attributes of God. I use him because the Puritans had a very high and elevated opinion of God. And uh, that is not necessarily the case today. Today, we think of God as the local bellhop that's got a little cosmic capability or something like that, and he, we sort of make him like us, and uh, it's the other way around. We have a few characteristics are like him, that are like him, but only a very few. And I was glad to see this morning we uh, sang El Shaddai as one of our songs. That was nice. God Almighty. And... Uh, also, Isaiah 6, where uh, Isaiah confronted God in heaven and his robes filled the whole temple. And Isaiah didn't ask him questions. He fell on his face and said, I am undone. And in case you don't know what undone means, that he was a priest and he should have been perfect. And he said, everything, in other words, everything I thought about God isn't what's there. In other words, God is far transcendent from anything we can think of. So today I've got, I was given the task of going in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then I'm supposed to uh, give it whatever time's left, we will talk about all the attributes of God which are infinite. So uh, there'll be plenty of them to talk about. I picked a few. So we start off with in the beginning God. In the beginning God is the most important, as far as I'm concerned, verse in the Bible because without it the Bible doesn't exist. And uh, the three words that are very important in that, sen in that sentence is beginning, God, and created. If we can undercut the concept of a divine creation, the whole Christian life and worldview collapses because primary to Christian faith is the concept that this world has not emerged as a cosmic accident. And in the Psalms you run across, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So these are the foundations of our faith, and without them, the Bible is just another book like War and Peace or something like that. Okay, to take the three words that are important here, beginning. Was there a beginning, or is matter the eternal thing. Well, pretty much nowadays, science has decided that uh, we had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. They talk about the singularity and, and these kinds of things, rather than matter being eternal. Now, God is eternal, but not matter. What was the beginning? Space and time. 
God doesn't require space and time, so beginning was the beginning of space and time. If we talk about, if you can talk about, before time, uh, that was only God, and it was only God in eternity before. The Bible begins and ends with God. Either your worldview starts with God or with man. And we talked about, they weren't worldviews world last week, they were lenses. But uh, it's the same thing, how you see the world and how you see things around you. If your worldview doesn't start, start with God, then it starts with man. And, human, and in humanism, man is the measure of all things. There have been atheists throughout history, but the attack on God has been the focal point for about the past 200 years. For some, before that, God was pretty much a given. But in the past 200 years, in the, quote, age of enlightenment, I don't know, I might call that the age of darkenment, because uh, they denied God, with the result, uh, God, science explained, exploded in the seven, late 1700s, early 1800s, and all of a sudden God wasn't necessary to explain all things. So uh, we had the explosion of the Enlightenment, and then Kant in, in 1790 said, you can't uh, know that there is a God. He said there's a physical world and a spiritual world and a large barrier in between the two, and you can't know that there is a God. So. In Germany, the Enlightenment took on skepticism. In France, the Enlightenment took on an anti-God, anti-state approach, and you ended up with the reign of terror and uh, Napoleon. But in Christianity, if we go back to Kant, and he says he's got a barrier between uh, us in, the spirit, in this world and the spiritual world, and he said, we can't penetrate it. In Christianity, that barrier is our sin. What Kant didn't know or didn't say anyway is God can penetrate that barrier and God can make himself known to us. Darwin wrote his book in the 1850s and all of a sudden we didn't have to have God to have living beings. They just evolved. Nietzsche in the late 1800s declared that God was dead. This is how we end up in today's society with uh, skepticism and postmodernism. In the late 1800s, the schools of higher criticism with doubted the authenticity of the first five books of the Bible started in Germany, in Tübingen and Heidelberg. And it's still with us in many denominations. It's called the higher criticism and they doubt all kinds of parts of the Bible. But so, so we have the rise of modernism. In other words, science is going to answer all our questions. And then skepticism. But science didn't have the answer so, to all the questions. And so in the middle of the last century, we ended up with postmodernism. No, no overall authority or truth, relativism, and lately post-truth, which only requires uh, feelings and preferences. Last week, we passed around a book called The Universe Next Door. Pastor Adi passed that around. And a quote from that, in postmodernism, the essence of modernism is not left behind. Both rest on two key notions. The cosmos is all there is, i.e., no God of any kind exists. 
the autonomy of human and the autonomy of human reason. Also, also quoting from that book is the acknowledgement of death of God is the beginning of postmodernism wisdom. It is also the end of postmodernism wisdom. Now, over a hundred years after Nietzsche, <coughs> the news that God's death had the news of God's death has finally reached the ears of man. The horizon defining the limits of our world has been wiped away. The center holding us in place has vanished. Our age, in other words, postmodernism, finds itself afloat in a pluralism of possibilities with no dominant notion of where to go or how to get there. <clears throat> a future of cultural anarchy seems inevitable. In other words, as Francis Schaeffer said, we have our feet planted firmly in midair. In Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. <clears throat> we are at the point of judges in the Bible. Everyone does what was right in his own eyes, what feels good or what he prefers. And that's our society today. Not the Christian society, but I'm talking about the outside society. The case for God's existence I list them here. I covered these about three years ago or something like that. Uh, none of them have changed except the teleological one, the end purpose. <clears throat> and that one, because of the discoveries in the past 30 years in microbiology and cosmology, has expanded very much to the point where it's almost impossible for a, an honest person to say there is no God. The, micro, the, the human cell is so complex, it is impossible for it to have evolved. With microbiology, uh, able to go inside the cell and see what's happening. It's like a, a factory uh, with, with tractors running back and forth and propeller-driven machines running back and forth. And uh, it's got an import and a trash, trash can on the side and, and everything. <laughs> the other part of it is when the, when the human body is formed, or any, it can be an elephant, it doesn't matter, but you go from a single cell to a three-dimensional human being or a three-dimensional elephant, <clears throat> they don't know how they get there because the DNA doesn't have enough information in it to get us that far. And so they're trying to figure out where all this other information comes from. They call it, they call it epigenetic. There's a good book by Eric McTraxis, if some of you have read some of his books, I think, and it's called Is, Athe Is Atheism Dead? It just came out last year, and he lists a whole bunch of these uh, uh, things that they've discovered over the past 30 years. <clears throat> so we'll take care of that. If you have any questions on them, I'll be glad to answer them later. <clears throat> but I only have to cover an infinite God, so there's plenty of time. <laughs> One of the oldest questions in philosophy is, why is there something instead of nothing? If there was ever nothing, there would be nothing today. Ex nihilo nihil fit means out of nothing, nothing comes. And that's one of the oldest premises of science. It's not, it's not uh, Christianity or anything like that. That is one of the oldest premises of science. So. The attack is, does God exist? Is God relevant? Did God create? 
or is it the, science, the singularity of science? And it seems that the singularity has become the god of evolutionists. The world would have us believe that an uncaused explosion occurred in a math at a mathematical point called a singularity. By the way, the dimensions of a mathematical point are zero. <laughs> it's called nothing. And without any purpose or design, an ordered universe came out of the explosion and <clears throat> order came out of chaos and a highly sophisticated, finely tuned spaceship called Earth resulted and we are now all traveling on that spaceship without a pilot, no particular destination and everything <clears throat> will end up in a universe that is cold, dead and without meaning. We get life from non-life. We get morals from an amoral universe. We get personality from an impersonal universe. We just, the universe just has atoms and molecules and quarks and gluons. They say we rely on faith. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist to believe that scenario. God created. That is the other third uh, portion of, the, uh, of Genesis 1.1. The universe is not part of God. It is not pantheism. He is transcendent, separate from, separate from his creation, but not separated from it. The last phrase, the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. And to the Hebrew living in the desert, the heavens, the starry skies above, and in case you've never been in the desert, the starry skies above are phenomenal. We see about maybe one-third of them because of all the pollution and lights in the city. And the starry skies above and the earth below are the, uh, are the universe to a Hebrew in the desert, living in the desert where they were. The Bible is not a science document. It doesn't go into all the details of how creation happened. In Hebrews it says, For from him, through him, and to him are all things, and to him be the glory. What is the purpose of Moses writing this? Well, it's just one sentence. Uh, this verse, under the inspiration of God. It shows God in all his majesty. He created ex nihilo. In other words, God created out of nothing. And not nothing came from nothing because God was there to start with. So there wasn't, there was no material things. So God created ex nihilo, a material universe. The God who can make the universe and all the billions of stars out of nothing, how powerful, immense this God of creation is, and the detail and the beauty of his creation. <clears throat> the uh, Psalms, the heavens declare the glory, glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Even Kant had to agree that if life was going to have any meaning, there had to be justice, and there wasn't justice in this world. So there had to be life after death and justice and a just judge. But you can bring all the facts and all the proofs to a person, and if they don't want to be persuaded, it'll have no effect. Okay, the next thing I've got is who is this God? In other words, now we'll go into the attributes of God. Charnock, the one I talked about, says, God is a simple, infinite, immense, eternal, incorruptible being, a per, pure, perfect spirit. All the perfections and attributes of God 
are infinitely elevated above the excellencies of creatures, above whatsoever can be conceived by the clearest and most perceiving understanding. In other words, God is totally different, is transcendent, not in location, but in actual being. How can an infinite creature know anything about, how can a finite creature know anything about an infinite, incomprehensible God? Once again, I've got an incomprehensible thing. I had that once before, I believe. It was called the Athanasian Creed. How do we get it? We get it through God's special revelation. Man was created in the image of God with a mind and the ability to communicate and a moral sense and a soul. Because of this, God can communicate with us and we can communicate with Him to a limited extent. God says to Moses, I am the Lord in Exodus 6. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. But through the prophets and the and finally, through Jesus, we are able to know some of the attributes of the Lord. All of these attributes overlap each other. They're, they're, God is not separate. God is one. He is, not, he, is a, he is a simple being. By that I mean He has no parts. We have all kinds of parts. We've got arms, legs, eyes, ears, all that kind of stuff. God has none of that. God is what is biologically called a simple being. So all of his attributes are all combined together. He doesn't have one part of love, one part of mercy, one part of this. They are all, all is love, all is mercy, all is, is uh, whatever you, attribute you want to pick. The principal ap- attribute of God is a seity. Now that's probably not a word you're familiar with. He is self-existent, not dependent on anything he cannot not be. He exists in eternity. He has all life in himself. The next attribute I want to cover is the triune God. We have a triune God, which is three persons in one essence, uh, which is one of those things that nobody can explain in this world anyway. We might get an inkling of it in the next one. The biggest uh, example of this well, starting with creation, you've got God creating the heavens and the earth. In, in verse 2, you've got the Spirit hovering over the deep. And in John 1, you've got the Word made flesh. The Word was God. The Word, word is God. The word, the word is with God. And through Him, all things were created. So you've got the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together. Once again, the Father, Spirit, and Son cannot be separated. They, wherever the Father is, the Son is. Wherever the Son is, the Spirit is. They're all together. So when, you, when we say Jesus did something, the Father and the Spirit were right there with Him. He wasn't there by Himself. You can't separate God. The next one I have is eternity. And... Uh, if anybody's got a good explanation for what that is, I would sure like to hear it because it's uh, infinitely beyond me. But the best I can come up with on it is God has set eternity in our hearts. That's in Ecclesiastes. And in John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, 
God is eternity. If you get down to, to the uh, quote by Tozer, we who live in this nervous age would be wise to meditate on our lives and our days long and often before we face God and on the edge of eternity. For we are made for eternity as certainly we are made for time. In other words, we have a soul and our soul is made for eternity. The immutability of God. Immutability is a fancy word saying God can't change. He is, he is one. He is omniscient, which is another one down further. And he knows everything. So he can't learn because he already knows it. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change his mind since he is omniscient. He knows all things from beginning to end. To say that God is immutable is to say he never differs from himself. The concept of growing or developing God is not found anywhere in scriptures. It seems to me impossible to think of God as varying from himself in any way. That's Tozer. And in James we, he, uh, James for, uh, chapter 1, the father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. The next uh, attribute is omnipresent. This one can be very embarrassing for us. <laughs> the Lord is there. I gave you a couple uh, Bible verses there if you want to look them up, but Psalm 139 is, is a principal one which says, no matter where I go, if I go to the bottom of the ocean or the highest heavens, or if I go to hell, God is there. People say God is, is not in hell. That's not true. God is in hell, and the people in hell would give anything if he wasn't, because he is there, and he is holy, and he is perfect, and he shows them how, how gross sin really is. Charnock says, his power reaches all, his knowledge pierces all, as everything in the world was created by God, so everything in the world is preserved by God. He is omnipresent. Thou preservest man and beast, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And Jeremiah says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not far off? That's a rhetorical question. Can man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. God knows you. He knows every molecule in your body. He knows what you're going to do today, what you're going to do tomorrow, and he knows what you're going to do next year. There is nothing that surprises God. He knows it all to start with. The next one is the omnipotent God. And I put down the decretive will of God is God's will when he says something, it happens. In other words, he says, let there be light. There is light. There's no question about it. There's no, the, the universe can't not do what he says. And uh, then the perceptive will of God is like his Ten Commandments. He tells us how to live. He gives us a, 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 a plan of how we should carry out our lives. We don't follow it, but uh, that's his. He gave us the uh, book on how to, how to live. Now, what happens is 
we break we don't break those laws of God. We break ourselves on them. When we defy the laws of God, we are hurting ourselves. We don't hurt God. In Isaiah 55, my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. In other words, when God says something, it happens. Even his perceptive will of God, it carries out what he said, what he wants. It makes us know what the right way is and makes us feel guilty and makes us know that we are sinners, which is what he gave it to us for. In Jeremiah, Our Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. He made the universe. He made us. Does he need any help from us? No. Just ask Job. Job in <laughs> chapter 38, uh, he got a lesson in how to help God. Keep his mouth shut. And uh, the next one is omniscience, <coughs> which is another one that uh, is, is mind-boggling us to us because he knows everything from start to finish. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, he knows the end before he even started the universe. And from ancient times, which, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He has a plan for this universe and for our lives and for all of our lives. He only has plan A, and plan A is the one that's carried out because God is, all, is omni, uh, omnipotent. If he was not omniscient, we wasted a whole year reading the book of Revelations <laughs> because he would just... That would just be a mythical story that he gave us, and it might be true and it might not. Okay. The next one is holiness. And I was glad to see we sang holy, holy, holy in the first service this morning. Uh, and uh, we had Isaiah 6. And I, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes is in a vision is before the throne of God. He actually, if you read it, he doesn't see God, but he says he sees where God is. He can't see God because of the... If you look in other places, God is nothing but a, a field of, of bright lights and uh, nobody can see him because he's a spirit. And who can see God in the uh, Beatitudes, it tells you? The pure in heart. Uh, I don't think we've got anybody in here yet that can see God. <laughs> but maybe, maybe Leah does. <laughs> okay. This, when the, when the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, when you take a, a word like holy, holy, holy and carry it out to three levels, that's like good, better, and best, only it's much higher than that. The third level in the Hebrew language is way above anything on this in this universe. So when they when the seraphim sing holy holy holy, they're not saying he's just really good. He is above everything. Holiness is the essence of God. Holiness covers all of the other attributes of God. 
Charnock says, we can distinguish holiness of God from his righteousness in our conceptions. Holiness is perfection, is his is a perfection absolutely considered in the nature of God. In other words, it is part of God. It is God. God is the definition of holy. holy the holiness of God negatively, Charnock has also wrote this, is a perfect, unpolluted freedom and freedom from all evil, which is the best explanation I can come up with holiness because the next one he has is, since the fall, the attribute which renders God most amiable to himself renders him most hateful to his apostate creatures. In other words, a sinner in the hands of a holy God is terrorized because he sees how evil he is. Nothing is so contrary to the sinfulness of man as the holiness of God, and nothing is thought of by a sinner with so much detestation. His holiness, and the other one we'll get to, his justice, are the two attributes which secularism, secularism or postmodernism would like to do away with because they know they are guilty and it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Hebrew word for holy is Kodash, which I'm sure I mispronounced, which means to be set apart or concentrated. He is set apart from his creation, transcendent, but is intimately involved with his creation. He is all in all. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I put holiness in the middle of this list because holiness uh, covers all of them. You could say his goodness is holy, his omnipotence is holy, his, uh, his being is holy. It is God himself. The next one I have is goodness. Faith must be acted on in worship and <clears throat> a confidence in God. A natural worship, worship cannot be performed with a natural confidence in the goodness of God. Whoever comes to him must regard him as a rewarder and a faithful creator. Without God's goodness, uh, we couldn't ry- rely on him at all. But uh, his goodness requires those things that we don't like, which is his justice. If he wasn't just, he wouldn't be good. Of course, if he wasn't love, he wouldn't be good. And if he wasn't mercy, he wouldn't be good. How do you define uh, goodness? We usually define goodness by things we like and Badness or evil by things we don't like. That isn't much of a definition because today it's one thing and tomorrow is something else. But in God's case, he is the standard. It is part of his being. In the declaration of, uh, well, in the uh, Genesis story, of the first six days it says each time God declares it is good. And then when he creates mankind, he says it's very good. God is the judge of good, not us. Our feelings and uh, preferences have nothing to do with it. We think of goodness as love. We think, we like to think of goodness as love, mercy, grace, holiness, faithfulness, and the Redeemer. But God would not be good if there was not justice and if there was not discipline. Goodness 
is listed 23 times in the Old Testament. An example is in the uh, 23rd Psalm. But wrath is listed 185 times. So maybe God's trying to get our attention that we better be good or we're going to end up on the other side. The next attributes I've got on there, love, grace, mercy, long-suffering, and righteousness, justice, are all working together and cannot be separated, but can be distinguished between them at least a little bit. Love, Luther wrote in one of his theses, not the 95 theses, but this was the theses for the Heidelberg Disputation, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, God loves the unlovable and makes it lovable. We are not good because we are good. We are good because God's love is working through us. I mean, isn't it true that we can love because God loved us first? We return God's love. I mean, that was mine and my husband's wedding verses in First John is we are capable of loving because yeah. we have God's love. We know... Well, not, I'm not, you know, I, I guess love is one of those words that has so many meanings in our society. The Greeks have four words for it. Most of the love that we talk about in, in society here is eros and phileo, which means uh, physical attraction and brotherly love. God's love is agape. It is, it is uh, unmerited. He loves the unlovable. Augustine, in his book on grace and free will, <coughs> our good deeds are really God's work going through us. In other words, when we have a, we talk about we're, our deeds and we will be judged by our deeds as a Christian, that's not us doing it. That's God working through us. So don't take any credit for it. In other words, what have I got that I was not given by God? It is not an, it's an unconditional love for those who believe from God. And if you want to get a de good definition of it, go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 6, which I covered once before in this class too. The next one is grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Tozer decides to, talks about it this way. <clears throat> Grace takes its rise far back in the heart of God in the awful, incomprehensible abyss of His holy being. But the channel through which it flows out to men is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. I know some of you people like Tozer very much. I do. In Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us all. And it is by grace through faith that we are saved. So it's God's grace, His unmerited favor. In other words, He loves the unlovable. We can never put God in our debt. We sometimes... Uh, we can never put God in our debt. Love is God's grace in action, the way I look at it. Grace is not a thing. It is a description of God's love in action. Mercy is the next attribute I want to talk about. Mercy in a, 
Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature, this is Tozer, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Both the Old and New Testaments proclaim his mercy, the mercy of God, but the Old has more than four times as much to say about the New. If it wasn't for God's mercy, we would all have been obliterated a long time ago because we are all sinners. I always get a kick when I see the uh, ads on TV that the person is saying, I want what I deserve, or I deserve that. I want this because I deserve it. I don't think any of us want what we deserve. I'll take mercy any day. He has always dealt in mercy with mankind and was all, and will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. In other words, if you despise God's mercy, you're going to get God's wrath. Mercy, mercy is injustice. It's not injustice. God never is, uh, does injustice. You have justice and you have injustice and you have another category called injustice where you, you don't get what you deserve. Long-suffering, patience, faithfulness, and loving-kindness. I put all these together because it is one Hebrew word. And the, the word is hesed. And it occurs in the Old Testament over 250 times. And almost all of them refer to God. God's love, long-suffering, patience, faithfulness, loving-kindness. It's one of those words in Hebrew that can't really be translated into the English language. In Psalm 103, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, in other words, merciful, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. In other words, we haven't felt His wrath yet. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. Fear Him means reverence Him. And in Lamentations, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In Hebrews, I will never leave you, neither will I forsake you. I wonder how long God is going to put up with our culture today. I'm, I'm always amazed that we haven't been obliterate, obliterated last evening. The next one is righteous and, righteousness and justice. Why am I making through this whole thing? No. <laughs> righteousness and justice I put together because you can't be righteous if you're not just. just. And you can't be just, a, a good, just person if you're not righteous. So they are so tied together that I put them in one. In Genesis, uh, Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the world deal justly? This is when they were walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was trying to talk God out of destroying the place by if there are 10 righteous people or 10, 20 righteous people. And he finally says, shall not, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? In Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am a God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, my word has gone forth my, by my mouth, from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or swear allegiance. 
Some of us will knee will bow to God and praise Him. Other ones are going to kneel to God in terror because a sinner in front of the holy God, the, uh, I don't know, I've always thought a sinner sulking in there, he's got a dirty robe on and the brightness of God's uh, effluence is going to just burn that robe right off of him and burn him right out of the, out of the area. God doesn't have to just him justify uh, his arguments because his sin is going to be so apparent. And you can't, God cannot have sin in his presence. So it's going to blow it right out of there. Another one that uh, hits us kind of hard is in Matthew 12. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for that in that day of judgment. And then how many careless words do we say every day? God is the judge. Righteousness and goodness require judgment. If God did not judge, He would not be holy or good. For those who believe in Jesus, they are covered with the righteousness of Jesus and have been declared just, not made just, but are declared just while still sinners. But that does not mean they escape discipline or the consequences in this world for their action. Luther, when he was a monk, lived in great fear of the righteousness of God because he knew, he kept trying and trying and trying to be righteous and he knew he could never measure up and he almost got to the point where he hated God because God was going to judge him and condemn him. And then he discovered it wasn't his righteousness that was necessary, but God's righteousness imputed to him. He, <coughs> Luther says, Just a picator, that's a little bit of Latin, means just, you're justified while still a sinner. The next one is wrath, and I guess we haven't run out of time yet, so you're going to have to listen to this. (laughs) There's, like I said, 185 hits in the Old Testament. We talk about wrath throughout the book of Revelations. This is not the wrath or rage where you lose control, but it is controlled punishment of the rebellious. Examples, destruction of Nineveh, the destruction of Babylon, the destruction, two destructions of Jerusalem. In Revelations, we read about the wrath of God in the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath. In Joshua, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. In other words, he will destroy you. That's what I'm talking about. You walk into God's presence as a sinner and you're just going to be a crispy critter. <laughs> In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the suppression of the truth, which we see every day. All you have to do is turn on the television set or read if you read a newspaper. I don't. I quit doing that. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. And the last one is probably the most controversial one in this audience, and that is sovereignty. Is God sovereign? And if God is sovereign, 
what happens to our free will because you can't have free will under a sovereign God. It can't exist. Of course, a lot of that depends on how you define free will. And my definition of free will is you choose what you want. That you are free to choose what you want. When you walked in this room, you looked around at all the chairs and you said, I want that one. You had some reason for wanting that chair you're sitting in. Maybe it's that soft cushion, maybe it's in the front or in the back, but you had a reason for it and you chose to sit there. You may have no, no cognitive uh, thought of this. It happens automatically with you. But if you had totally free will and you had no uh, inclinations one way or the other, you'd still be standing at the door because you wouldn't be able to choose anything. It's like the donkey at the entrance to the uh, barn, and he's got a bale of hay on one side and a bucket of oats on the other side, and they're equal distant from him, and he has no inclination for hay or oats. What happens to him? He starves to death. So it depends on how you de uh, define free will. The bondage of the will is a good start for how to define free will. Because Luther says, You're, you have an inclination to sin. It is a natural inclination that you're born with. It's a, <clears throat> it's a good book to read, and you ought to read it. Also, Luther wrote the 97 Thesis, not the 95 Thesis, but the 97 Thesis that came out a month ahead of time. And it talks all about free will and the bondage of the will in his Thesis. Being, you can look those up on Google, I guess. God's sovereignty is an attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. The reasons are these. Were there even one datum of knowledge, or as R.C. Spall puts it, one maverick molecule, however small unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all the creation, he must possess all knowledge, and were God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, he, that lack would be the end of his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else, and God would be limited, and hence not sovereign. In other words, are you sovereign? Are you autonomous? Or is God sovereign? And people today want to be autonomous. Of course, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve wanted to be autonomous. Charnock, that was Tozier's comment on it. Charnock says, It is folly to deny or doubt a sovereign being, incomprehensible in his nature, infinite in his essence and perfections, independent of his operations, who hath given being to the whole frame of sensible, intelligent creatures, intelligible creatures. I keep reading that as intelligence creatures, and, and I know creatures aren't intelligent because I deal with them every day and I look in the mirror. And governs them according to their several natures by an unconceivable wisdom who fills the heavens with glory of his majesty and the earth with the influences of his goodness. How do you handle, like I said, how do you handle the dilemma between what we think is our free will 
and the sovereignty of God because God is sovereign and everything he wants. He only has plan A. He doesn't have plan B. When he sent his son into this world, it wasn't, well, maybe somebody will believe him and I'll send him there. No, God knew exactly who was going to believe and who wasn't going to believe. How he knows, I don't know. The Bible only says it's by his good purpose and his, and uh, that's it. And by his power. He, it's his purpose. He doesn't tell us how he selects people. I don't know how he does. And, and of the Bible, I, I go with, along with the, uh, reform, some of the reformers who said, when the Bible shuts its mouth on a topic like that, shut your mouth. <laughs> well, it's 45. Anybody got any questions? I hope I haven't put everybody to sleep, but... <laughs> so we'll close with prayer then. We thank you, Lord, for your revelations to us in Scripture. Help us to understand your Word and to grow in knowledge of you so that we may give a ready defense for the hope you give to us. We know that all things are created in you, for you, and to you, and for your glory. Be with us as we go through this week, that we all may become back here next week and help us as we slip and slide home this afternoon. And also be with Pastor Adi as he comes back from San Antonio on some very slippery roads. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.